Let's pray together, friends. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for your provision for us. Uh, Lord, we thank you that it is by the blood of Jesus uh, that we can have a relationship with the God of the universe. Lord, we thank you that when you established and created everything that we see and know and even the things we don't see and know, that you had us in mind. Lord, that is almost so baffling and so dumbfounding that uh, it, it confuses us at times. But Lord, there's nothing to be confused by. There is a God in heaven who loves us. And no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter what's been done to us, you sent your son, the one and only, to die for us. Unworthy, sometimes seems unlovable, left to our own devices, we're dead in our sins, but yet you came to make us alive in Christ and we thank you for that. And so Lord, would you just posture our hearts to you and would you just help us to see and discern and to understand things that maybe we haven't seen before. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today we're kicking off a series called The Passover Lamb. We're two weeks away uh, from Easter, and I'm super excited about this message because the reason we planned Exodus uh, the way we did many months ago is to kind of help us all get ready for this series called The Passover Lamb. And so if you've been reading along with us, this narrative that we read about today will not be new to you, uh, but should be a blessing to you. Uh, if it is new to you, then I hope to share it with you in such a way in a few moments uh, that the Lord still can use it in your life and that you will be blessed by what we see and hear and um, apply to our lives today. Now, before we real quickly, we jump into this, I want uh, just to, uh, one, welcome you. We're glad to have you. And uh, my name's Brandon, and they allow me to uh, be a pastor here and uh, allow me to lead our church with a couple of other men. And so we are grateful to have you. Uh, if you're joining us in Edgewood or online, we're glad that you're hanging out with us as well. And before we jump into the Passover lamb, I want to uh, just let you know, not only is Easter a couple of weeks away, but as we mentioned a few moments ago uh, in our video uh, announcements, is that two weeks from now, we're also going to have uh, eight block parties across Van Zandt County. Uh, if you want some information about that, go to you know, stonepointchurch.com forward slash Easter with us. But I would say where I would need the biggest help from you, and we do, um, is simply by going to stonepointchurch.com uh, forward slash Easter with us and say, Saving your spot for that weekend. While we have six services across the couple of campuses that we have, uh, we do anticipate uh, that this being the first year we've never uh, hosted it on Wills Point High School campus here in Wills Point, that our services could be rather full. Um, and not only could they potentially be full, uh, they could also be a little bit challenging with our parking situation, uh, with kids ministry and lots of different things. And so for your help in reserving a place for us, like that really is loving people well. Um, and so I know that uh, it's like, do I really need to do that? And the answer is yes, emphatically, yes. Um, and today would be a great day to do that. And the reason why is because we know uh, that there's going to be many of our friends that are coming and they're most likely going to come to our two prime services, which are Sunday 9 and 11, which means if you want to love people well, and that means you, you could maybe come and hang out with us on Saturday. Um, and so I want you to just be thinking about that. Um, 
Um, the other thing is, is just to be realizing that Easter only happens in, in a way that's successful in our campuses if there's lots of hands on deck. And so maybe uh, there's been a season where you've kind of stepped out of serving for some reason, but you go, you know what, I've served before. Um, I know how to help park cars or I know how to welcome and greet people. Hey, listen, the time to jump back in is now. And uh, it's a great opportunity for you to be a part of Easter weekend. And so encourage you um, to get with Cody uh, on the Wills Point campus, get with Archie and Dick on the Edgewood campus and say, hey, I can be available. And maybe it's parking cars. Uh, maybe it's helping greet people. Maybe it's serving coffee. Um, maybe it's just a friendly smile um, and helping point people a different direction. Uh, maybe uh, you've served in kids ministry before and you meet all the qualifications of our kids ministry. Hey, you can get with Kelly on either campus and say, hey, I'll... I'll serve. Or even more than that, maybe you serve already and you say, you know what, I'll be willing to serve an additional service. I'll serve two services that weekend. That's what it looks like to be sacrificial. And I just want you to know, like, we, we need your help. And so uh, it's going to be a very daunting task and we're looking forward to it. Why? Because I know that that weekend, there's going to be many people that put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ um, as a result of our faithfulness to serve them. I was having a conversation just a few moments ago uh, with a gentleman who uh, about seven or eight years ago came to an Easter service. Um, he, um, he heard a message that Easter, and he is one of the most faithful, um, God-loving men that Stone Point has in our church and has been here uh, for eight years. And his first encounter with us was an Easter Sunday many years ago. And I'm thankful for him and his friendship. And as we were visiting today around the message that we uh, were going to hear, it was an incredible thing to hear the testimony of this guy and be reminded of that one more time. And so Easter matters, not just for you and your family and the egg hunt that's going to follow your Sunday experience, but to also set our preference aside, Philippians 2, and serve others. And so may that be a commendation to all of us. Friends, I'm glad to have you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you today, we'd love to bless you with one. Uh, as you uh, leave, you can go to Connection Point at either location, and we'd love to help you in that way. Uh, but as we dive into Exodus chapter 12, we're going to just refill, uh, f familiarize ourselves with the Exodus sojourn, a story about God's people. Uh, we see at the beginning of, uh, uh, of Exodus in the latter part of Genesis that there was about 70 people uh, that would go in seeking refuge and asylum uh, from a famine in their land. Uh, these 70 people uh, would go and they would find hope and refuge in Egypt because Joseph was there. Joseph, the brother sold into slavery uh, by his brothers. What they meant for evil, God would use for good, Genesis 50 verse 20. And uh, what they would find is a refuge and hope there. They would find food in the midst of famine. They would find comfort in the midst of hardship. And all of it was there. But not too long as uh, they're in Egypt, the Israelites are going to begin to experience some discomfort. Why? Because Joseph's going to die. And when he dies, they realize that, hey, these people who are growing in number and stature pretty quickly are going to overthrow us. And so Pharaoh at the time said, hey, let's make it more difficult for them. And they made the load more cumbersome. And for 430 years, the Israelites to the day lived and had their home in Egypt but the longer they were there, the more oppressed they were, the more taxed and burdened they were, and the more physically they despaired. So much that they cried out to God and God heard them. God would raise up a young man named Moses, uh, even in his disobedience to go. And Moses' job was to go to a guy named Pharaoh, the known leader of the world in Egypt, and to say, 
let my people go. And if you grew up in church, y'all might have, there was a song that said, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Y'all know it? No? Okay. So if you didn't, if you didn't, it's okay. It's probably one of the most painful experiences of my childhood. So I try to not relive it all the time. Uh, but it was a song and he would go, hey, Moses, let our people go. Moses uh, went to Pharaoh, told him that. Pharaoh said, no, no, I'm not going to do it. Plague after plague after plague after plague. Nine of them in all before finally God says to Moses, you need to prepare your people. And the reason you need to prepare them is that there's going to be a last plague of destruction. I'm going to take all the firstborn in the land and I'm going to, I'm going to kill them. And, and Pharaoh will eventually relent. His hardened heart, uh, though hardened, will let the people go um, and, and you, you will be ready to escape. But in order for that to happen, he goes, there must be a provision. There must be a Passover of sorts. There must be a transfer that takes place because the angel of death is going to pass through the land. And when it does, I need to be able to know that there's a clear difference between the people of God, Israel, and the people who are not of God, Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 12, we see this story transpire. And as it is transpiring, it's going to happen on the 14th day of Aviv. Now, in the modern day, uh, that's the, the month of Nisan. Uh, but back then, uh, in historic times, it was going to be the first month of the Jewish calendar. So God says, I'm going to make you a nation, a new nation. I'm going to give you a new calendar, and I'm going to give you new ways of serving me. And one of the things he's going to institute are feasts. And, and these Passover, uh, Passover is one of many feasts that would commemorate their relationship to God. But here it is in Exodus chapter 12, after telling them uh, that the Passover is going to happen on the 14th day of Aviv, that it's going to um, set up the, the, a feast that's a week long from the 14th to the 21st called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He goes, on the evening of that feast, you are going to have a meal, and that meal is going to commemorate and celebrate the Passover. That meal is going to kind of in some ways usher in this feast of unleavened bread. And in verse five and six of Exodus 12, he says, you are to go and select the lamb and that lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take from it uh, sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. In verse 7, he says this, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. What he says is, he goes, there's not only going to be a provision of the lamb, the lamb has certain requirements, but he goes, you're also going to apply this blood. And when you do, he goes, you need to realize that it's per household. This isn't a national freedom. It's not something that one person does. It is something to be applied by the house. He's going to tell them how to uh, prepare the food and, and how to um, roast the lamb in, in verses 8 through 10. In verse 11, he's going to tell them to be ready, to have their staff in hand, their sandals ready, their cloak ready to go. They're, they're going to be ready to sprint out of the country when it happens. And then in verse uh, 12, he's going to say, hey, judgment's coming. That's why you need to be ready. In verse 13, this is what he says. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hence the word Passover. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Then in the following verses, 14 through 20, God's going to outline what the Passover feast is, what it means. 
And then as he does that to Moses, Moses is going to go and he's going to tell the elders what he heard. So he's going to gather the elders in the land and he's going to recite what God told him. And so in verse 22 and 23, he's reciting what the Lord had told him. And so here's what he says. He goes, you're to take a bunch of hyssop and and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of the house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. In essence, what he does is he goes, you're to take the blood of the lamb that has been sacrificed and you're to put it on the lintels and and the doorposts. And so what he's doing is he's basically saying, you are to put it here, and you were to put it here, thus making the shape of what? Cross. He goes, what you were to do is you were to prepare yourself. And, and as you put it on the doorposts and on the lentils, he goes, you are preparing yourself for the angel of death. The, this Passover is instituted. They do as God commands. And then uh, as they are wrapping all that up, you get this sneak peek in the very last part of the chapter of what Moses is in essence telling the elders of the land. He goes, listen, this is going to be something that is, uh, we do all the time. This is just the beginning of an institution of a feast. Passover um, starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is what he says to everyone in the land, Exodus 12, 43 through 46. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover and no foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it, but only... It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Remember that. So what he's saying is, he goes, in order to be a part of the Passover feast, he goes, you need to be circumcised. And if you're not circumcised or you hire a worker, you need to make sure they're circumcised. And it was all a precedent of the land to make sure that there was a consecration, a setting apart, or a clear difference for those who the lamb would be applied for. And so here it is, you've got this Passover feast instituted uh, roughly 1,500 years before Jesus would ever come to pass. Moses is leading to the people and they are about to have their exodus. They are about to be freed. Uh, God is going to um, have the angel of death pass through and really what they, they need is a provision and this provision is very clear. Now fast forward. Fast forward all the way to a place and time where For hundreds of years, God has been telling the people of Israel that there is a Messiah coming, one who would set the captives free, who would enable people to live in freedom and in harmony with God, who would access a relationship with God and be known by him. All of that in some ways limited in the Old Testament is going to eventually have the chance to be fulfilled in the new. But the challenge is, is that if the Old Testament required bloodshed, then what would the New Testament require? If the Old Testament required a lamb, then what would the New Testament require? Now, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to lean in with me because we have, we have probably one of the most um, compelling messages for us in America today, almost so much I wish every church in America could hear it. Not because I'm giving it, but because of God's word's clarity on it. But what I want you to realize is this, is what I'm about to tell you is the key to the kingdom. 
what I'm about to share with you is, is how every parent in here should share with your child about what it looks like for their life to be passed over. In essence, for them to have a relationship with the God of the Bible, they need to know these things. They, they need to understand that they, these things really do matter. Matter of fact, I shared with my son earlier this week, who's 11 years old, I said, listen, I need you to pay attention when I give this message. And the reason why is because of what my son knows and what he doesn't know. And listen, I want you to hear what your child knows is probably something similar to what my child knows. And here's what my child knows. My child knows and has heard for many years that God loves him, that God created him special, that he was fearfully and wonderfully made. My children know that. My children also know that God sent his son, Jesus, because we have a great big sin problem. And that big sin problem separates us from God because God is holy and he's perfect and pure. What my kids also know is that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Now, if you've been in church ever in your life, or probably even if you haven't, you know that Jesus was a man who claimed to be God, or at least people claimed that he was God. And you've also heard that the reason that Jesus came and claimed to be God was because he died on the cross. And you've heard all your life that Jesus died on the cross because you're a sinner. Your children know that, you know that, everyone pretty much around us knows that. We run into very few people in our culture, and at least the places where we live, we run into very few people that don't know that. But I run into hundreds of people every day that if I were to ask them why Jesus, they don't know. Other than they would say, well, it was God's son. And here's the deal. There are many of you as adults that you don't know this. And what I'm about to show you is mind-blowing in some ways and so simple and yet others. But one of the things that every time I share the gospel, I show people what I'm about to show you. And here's what I want you to understand. When you're 10 or you're 13 or you're 17 or you're 19 or you're 23 or you're 28 or when you're 38-year-old friend, son, daughter, aunt, uncle, understands this, then they can understand what it looks like to give your life to Jesus Christ and to follow God in obedience. Not half-hearted devotion that sends you to church hoping to clean yourself up. I'm not talking about New Year's resolutions. I'm talking about a relationship with the God of the Bible. The relationship that I look across this room and see friend after friend after friend is the very thing that finally changed their life from being a churchianity person and a Christ follower. And that, I think, friends, is what's missing in so many. And so can I just show you real quickly why we need a Passover lamb and who it is that fulfills it? Y'all remember the requirements? In Exodus chapter 12, 5, there's three of them right there in that one verse. It shall be a lamb without blemish, and it should be a male a year old. Really, what that means is a, year, a male in its prime is what it is. So let's just talk first. It should be a male. Okay, um, y'all remember John chapter three, verse 16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, say it with me, son. Okay, hey, Edgewood, they're still, wait, we're waiting on him. Here we go. It's one and only what? Son. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. In multiple accounts, we would see that Mary would give birth to her firstborn son. It was, this wasn't a female. I had somebody uh, that was a teacher in high school and they go, well, how do you know that God sent a son? I'm like, because the Bible's really clear about that one. 
It wasn't a female. God was the son of God. He was the homo esau. He was the same stuff as his father. In essence and quality and being, he was the son of God who loved the world. But he wasn't just a son. He was also something else. Because in order to have a, a fulfillment of the Passover, you had to have a lamb that was a male. And so here, let's think about a lamb. The sacrifice has to be a lamb or a goat. Now you might ask yourself, well, why a lamb? Have you ever thought about that? I ask people all the time that question. I'm sitting there, I'm sharing the gospel with them. And I'll go, hey, why do you think a lamb? And they just look at me and they're like, oh. I mean, I don't, I don't know. And I'm like, well, why not a lion? You know, why not like a, a lizard? A snake? Shark? Cat, I mean, I mean we, could, we could sacrifice a lot of cats and be fine, right? Like dog, platypus. I mean, surely there's another animal, right? And the reality is, is the answer is no, because all of these other animals, they, they have some sort of personality about themselves, right? Dogs can be a little chaotic. Cats can be a little bit, you know, um, I don't know. They're, just, they're kind of their own deal, right? Like just kind of be obnoxious sometimes, you know? I mean, you think about a shark. I mean, you think about how vicious it is. You think about a lion and, and how strong and vicious it is. When you think about all these things, the reason that you have a lamb is because of its innocence. You have a lamb because it's pure. It's white as snow. It's same in the, the, the goat family. What God is saying, you, you can get either one of them. The reality is, is when you look at them, there is something about them that kind of draws you in. There's a purity of sorts. There's an opportunity for you to know that you're not going to likely be attacked by a lamb. And in its innocence, it almost is so innocent that it comes across as dumb, almost of no comely appearance. You don't think a whole lot about it. You just, you just kind of go on. But the reality is, is this lamb and the innocence of it makes it a perfect sacrifice. Matter of fact, when you think about the lamb, you must think about Jesus. You think about this guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the guy who prepared the way of the Lord. Isaiah told him, told us that he was coming. John the Baptist finally comes on the scene. We see he is the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah. He comes and eventually he's going to cross paths with this guy named Jesus, which is actually his cousin. But he's not seen him up to this point. And, and they're older in age. And it seems as if the first encounter you get in John chapter 1, verse 29, is an incredible thing. Because John the Baptist, as he's preparing the way of the Lord, he points to him. And this is what he says. It says, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he, he, Catch the he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, Jesus was born after John the Baptist. But John the Baptist goes, I recognize who he is because he's the Lamb of God, the one who has always been before me. What's he saying? He goes, Jesus is God. He's always been God. He's the one who created everything we see and know and the things we don't see and know. But as we look at him, he is the Lamb of God. You skip down a handful of verses in verse 35, he actually sees him the next day again. And the next day he takes the same initiative. The next day, again, John was standing with two of the disciples. Verse 36, he says, and he looked at Jesus when he walked by and he said, behold, the lamb of God. So here it is, you've got the male who's a lamb and he is innocent, humble, and meek. He is everything that the Old Testament sacrifice would require. 
And then nine times in the book of Revelation, the last book we have, he is referred to meaning Jesus, the Lamb of God. Nine times. So we have 11 times in our Bible for sure that he is referred to as the Lamb of God. Pretty incredible, right? But the lamb is not just a male. It's not just a lamb, but he's also got to be without blemish. When you think about without blemish, what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, it meant that he couldn't have cuts and scrapes. He couldn't have scars. It meant that he couldn't have some uh, skin disease. He couldn't have uh, an eye gouged out. Um, He couldn't be uh, crippled and, and just walking around as lame. He had to be the best. The, the way I would explain it to you is this, is that uh, in the middle of FFA, we have uh, grand champions. Uh, that's what you want. You want to take your grand champion and you want to put it before the Lord. You want to say, here it is. And as costly as that might sit, even feel, and even as much as you might ache, the reality is, is God deserves a lamb that is without spot or blemish, that is a male in its prime. And that's what God required. And guess what? That's exactly who Jesus is. Peter, the apostle, says this about Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. It says, but with the precious blood of Christ, he is like a lamb without blemish or spot. Incredible, right? Uh, think about the writer of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. He says, for we do not have a high priest. In this case, on um, the fulfillment of the sacrifice, not only a lamb, but a high priest. He goes, but we have the high priest um, and not one who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Who is that? Jesus. So Jesus is a male lamb without spot or blemish or wrinkle. He is without sin. He is perfect in every way. Sounds pretty promising, doesn't it? But it isn't to stop there, right? Because the sacrifice must die. It must shed its blood. In order for the, uh, for the Israelites to be free of the Egyptians, they had to take the blood and they had to put it over the lintels of their home, right? The doorpost. Well, get this. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, it says that he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. This is referring to Jesus, thus securing an eternal redemption. Friends, Jesus shed his blood so that he in anguish, despised, rejected, afflicted, would pour out himself so that other people might be saved. In essence, there was bloodshed. But if you remember the Exodus story in Exodus chapter 12, is it enough for you to take a lamb that meets all the requirements? It's a male in its prime without spot or blemish. It, it dies, it pours out its blood. You do all these things. Is it enough to stop there? Is it enough to know that there is a lamb that died? And I would say that's where most of America stops. Most of America goes, oh yeah, I, there's, Jesus died. Of course I believe that. Aren't I good? But the reality is, is that in order for the Passover lamb to be fruitful, its blood has to be applied. So think about a, a Jewish family. They, they, they sacrifice a, a choice lamb. Um, they're eating of it on the eve of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're about to commemorate and celebrate the first Passover they've ever had. The angel of death is about to swoop through the city and it's about to des- destroy people in the country and their firstborn child. And here it is, you've got this little Jewish family doing everything that, that has been fulfilled in the Passover, but they forget 
to take hyssop and blood and put it on the lintel of their home. Is that a problem? Yes, it's a huge problem. It is a problem to know that a sacrifice has been warranted and made and then to pass up on its application. And friends, I think that's the tragedy in the American church right now. We all know that blood has been given, but we've passed up on its application. It has to be applied to each individual life. That's why Jesus is promised the coming Messiah in Isaiah chapter 53. 700 years before Jesus ever comes on the scene, the prophet Isaiah says these words, surely he, meaning the Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he, the Messiah, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see the, the Passover, the transfer that took place? Here's what God does. He goes, there is one who you see and you would say he was afflicted by God. He was stricken. He was punished by who? God, not the Roman soldiers, not by you. You didn't place sin on Jesus. God placed sin on his son. God did a supernatural and sovereign act of taking his son and placing on him the iniquity of us all so that by his wounds, his blood, we might be healed. Now he's not talking about a... He's not talking in this context. He's not talking, if you look at the Passover, about his, his stripes, we are healed in a physical sense. I, he's not making the claim that because of our faith, we have physical healing, unless you mean in the afterlife, meaning heaven. But what he's saying is, he goes, it is by his stripes, it is by his blood being poured out that the exodus is fulfilled is by his blood being applied over your uncircumcised heart, which is now being circumcised by God because of the blood over your home, your heart. He goes, it is that applied that gives you new life. That's what brings healing. Healing doesn't mean there's not pain. It doesn't mean that there's not hurt. It doesn't mean that there's not waves of, of emotions. And it doesn't mean that there's not uh, difficult journeys ahead. It doesn't mean that there's not valleys of shadows of death. But what it does mean is that you don't have to fear because he is with you. Why? Because he has transferred. He has applied his blood to you. That's what the Passover is all about. It's about a lamb who is perfect, that was a male who shed his blood. And when it was applied to the Jewish home, the angel of death would pass over. Wow. We get this. God's a God of details. And there's some of you in here, you go, oh yeah, I've heard this story. I've heard this story, but I mean, not like I need more. I need more. Let me show you one more thing. If you remember, as they were about to inaugurate the Passover as a, a yearly deal, Moses told the elders, he goes, there's something that's really important. He goes, you make sure that when you take a lamb and you sacrifice it, there should be no broken bones. And you might ask, well, why does that even matter? Well, John tells us in 
John chapter 9, why that matters. And uh, in uh, John chapter 19, um, he says this in verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, which meant the, the next day, um, it says the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So in essence, what John, the apostle is saying, is you got men on, on the hill of Golgotha. Um, they are, are there hanging on crosses. We know from gospel accounts that Jesus was in the middle. You had thief on right and on the left. And what you have also is an incredible picture of what's happening. Basically, um, the Sabbath is, is going to be approaching and they go, hey, we've, we've got to break these guys' legs. We've got to, we got to um, speed up the process of their death. In essence, when they broke their legs, it would cause them just to collapse on themselves and they would suffocate. They couldn't lift up anymore to breathe. And so when they break their legs, it just, it just brings about the final part of the painful process they've already endured. So look what happens. They ask for Pilate's permission. He gives it. Verse 32 of John 19 says, So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Look at verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with his spear, and at once there came out blood and water. In the Exodus, you must have a male lamb, perfect in every way, willing to shed its life, blood applied, and it better not have any broken bones. That's pretty amazing, right? That history would even do what God has said should be fulfilled. Now, you might ask yourself the question, why does this matter? Like, this is really cool, but why does it matter? And here's why it matters. is because the only way the angel of death passed by is the blood applied. And here's what I want to ask you is, do you understand what God's done for you? See, in the Old Testament, we would call it Passover. I think the better phrase in the New Testament is called imputation. A word that you've probably not ever heard, or if you did, you're like, I don't really want, amputation, what? <laughs> like I got to cut off something? No, I got, no, imputing, which means a transfer. In the Old Testament, it was a transfer. I'm going to give you blood and I'm going to set you free. In the New Testament, it's a transfer. I'm going to give you blood and I want to set you free. And look how he gives them blood. In Romans chapter four, you get this entire chapter about a guy named Abraham. He's the father of the nation of, of Israel, promised about the fulfillment of a great nation would come through his son Isaac. Uh, but he was way late in years, 100 years of age before the promise even gonna be fulfilled. But God said it was credited to Abraham righteousness. And the question is, is why? Because Abraham was a knucklehead. He did some pretty bad, like, pretty poor things. But he said it was credited to Abraham as righteousness by his faith. And it outlines the entire chapter about Abraham and by faith that God gave him hope. Then it gets to the very end of Romans chapter four. And in verse 23, this is what it says. But the words, it is counted to him, meaning about Abraham, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
He goes, it can be counted to you by faith in the blood of Christ when you put your faith in the one who died, was buried, and rose again, the Passover lamb. Paul says it this way in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 17, this is a verse you've heard many times. It just says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But it didn't stop there. He goes on in verse 18, and this is what it says. All this is from God. What is? A new life. A new life is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. But look at verse 21. Here it is. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, the Lamb of God, spotless in every way. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. I'm going to take the innocent lamb and I'm going to crush him. And I'm going to be pleased to stricken him, to afflict him, to smite him, to have his beard plucked, for him to be spit upon, for him to be beaten, for him to be tormented, for him to be hung. And I want you to know that he was innocent in every way, that even though he was innocent, he would shed his blood and he would take on sin. Your sin, my sin, because God pleased it that way. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's imputation. It's a substitute. What that means is, is that you and I can make all the New Year's resolutions we want. We will never be good enough to satisfy the demands that God requires. He is perfect. He is holy. We are not. But God loved you enough that he provided a male ram perfect without blemish or spot or wrinkle or scar. He afflicted him. He beat him. He bloodied him, poured out his life so that his righteousness might be transferred to you, you dirty old sinner. Praise the Lord. That's the transfer. In essence, Colossians says it this way, and I skipped over this verse. So I'm going to go back to it. Colossians through, uh, it's Colossians 2, actually, uh, verse 13 through 15. It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Look at this. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In essence, you're a sinner, you deserve death, condemnation, and separation from God forever. Why? Because you're, you're a sinner and you're that filthy. Me too. He goes, but God sent the lamb to meet its legal demands. Isn't that awesome? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, the lamb. Which what he's saying is, he goes, listen, I get the enemies after you. I get it. The enemy wants you to alter course, but guess what? The enemy gets no say because the Lamb of God has blood applied to your heart. 
Why? Because God met the legal demands through his perfect and one and only son. Friends, when your 11-year-old understands, when your 15-year-old understands, when some of you who are at 33 right now, when you understand that it, didn't, it wasn't just some guy, it wasn't just some man that, that came and died, that it was the son of God and that he met these requirements on your behalf and there is no requirement that you're gonna meet then salvation can occur. It's when you finally drop down to your knees and you go, God, I get it. I get it, Lord. I am messed up. I am so jacked up. My life is unfruitful. I'm disobedient. I'm a child of the devil. I've been, I've been foolish in all my ways, but God, thank you that you met the legal demands for me. Thank you that I don't have to continue to work my way to you, God. That, yeah, God, I don't have to do anything because I know there's nothing I can do. But you did it for me that just in the Old Testament, the angel of death would wipe through all the Israelites too. But because the blood was applied, I could have a new life with you. Man, there are some of you today that you need a new life with Christ because your way is not working. Regen is not going to heal you because the fact is that regen only points you to the Lamb of God in which you can't see. And the enemy is the father of masquerading. He is the enemy of lies and he wants to lie to you. He wants you to tell you, hey, you need to start keep going to church and hey, if you do this, you're gonna miss it out. You're right, that's truth. But what the greater truth is, is there is one who died for you. And you need to understand that he paid his life as a ransom so that you may have life and have it to the full. Friends, can I just tell you real quickly, real quickly, the reason that, the reason here at Stone Point that we have been impressed to ask so much of our members is because I cannot fathom how it is that Jesus would give himself up for us and then call us to nothingness. It surely seems that if a blood of a lamb was crucified on my account, that my life would now count nothing unless it's for the sake of Christ which I think is what Paul means when he writes the Galatians in Galatians 2.20, that I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, that is in my flesh. That this life I now live by faith, I live in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see the transfer? So here's what my kids know. My kids know that they're sinners. They see it every day and I do too. You know what else they know? They know that God sent his son Jesus to die for the big sin problem. But you know what? They struggle to identify. And I pray that today is the day they, they hear and they understand is that the reason he's the substitute is because he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the only one that meets the criteria so that I may have eternal life which then begs the question, and there's really three of them I wanna leave with you. Maybe you're wrestling, you're like, ah, I just don't know about it. Let's just talk history real quick. The son of God, the lamb, died roughly 2,000 years ago. Since then, there are three questions that have yet to be answered that you need to answer. One of them, why does a Jew no longer eat lamb at the Passover meal? Two, why does a Jew no longer make sacrifices? And three, 
why is there no longer a temple? Now, I could just leave you with that and let you go. I'm just going to give you the answer, okay? And then then we're going to go out of here celebrating. Can, Can I tell you, there's no reason to kill a lamb at Passover because the lamb has finally been killed. And God's not going to allow sacrifices that mean nothing to be in place anymore. So guess what? He had the temple destroyed. And the temple has been destroyed um, since about 30 years after Christ. And so that means there's no more sacrifice. And guess what? There's no more temple um, sacrifices. Matter of fact, there's no more temple because Paul said, Uh, and and Acts, or actually Luke said in Acts, that the temple is not going to be built with human hands anymore. Matter of fact, do you know where God tabernacles among his people? Right here. And so what you need to realize is what God has done, because he's a God of details, he's basically said the Jews don't need to look to a lamb yearly anymore because there's been a final lamb offered. They don't need to go and make sacrifices because the sacrifice has been done. And moreover, you don't need a temple because I'm going to tabernacle and I'm going to dwell among my people. And you don't need a high priest who keeps you away from God because you have full access to me through Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, the account of Matthew would say that on the night that Jesus finally committed his spirit to the Lord, all of him, blood and water come out. It says the earth grew dark, the temple shook, which was inside the city. And it says the veil was torn from top to bottom, which means there is nothing that keeps you away from a meaningful relationship with Jesus because the final Passover lamb has been slaughtered. His name is Jesus, not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith, not Mary Mary, uh, Eddie Baker, not anybody else that would give you some watered down form of religion. His name was Jesus. He is the son of God that takes away our sin. May we lift him up, may we sing to him, and may we make much of him in our lives. Friends, goodness gracious, shouldn't our faith be lived out in excellence for him? Which means a lot of us need to get in the game. Let me pray for you. I don't want to get to preaching. Let me pray. (laughs) Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for this morning. God, we thank you so much for the wonderful lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Lord, even as I sit here right now, Lord, I have people in mind, which brings me to tears. Lord, there are people even here at the sound of my voice that don't know you and have never trusted in you and never followed in obedience towards you. I pray that today would be the day. I pray that people would trust you. And Lord, trusting you simply means to, to seek you and just ask you, Lord, would you forgive me of sin? Would you come in and would you make me new? Would you change my heart of stone? And would you replace it with a heart of flesh? God, would you help me to see my sin? And Lord, would you apply your blood to me? God, that's all it is. It's just asking you to give us a new life in Christ. Lord, I pray today's the day for many. And I pray that as we leave out of this place and prepare our hearts for Easter, that we would continue to fixate and set our eyes on things above, namely the Lamb of God, who is perfect in every way that died so that his blood might be shed on my account, on our account, so that we might have a new relationship with you. We love you. And Lord, we believe that it's a great reason for us to stand and sing together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.